Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. The American election is over. Even Senate leader Mitch McConnell has now congratulated Joe Biden for winning the presidency. But the lessons from the Trump era are still being hotly debated on both sides of the aisle. This week, I spoke with Orrin Cass, the executive director of American Compass, a newly created Washington-based group that seeks to remind conservatives that conservatism goes beyond free markets and corporate deregulation. A former policy architect for both Mitt Romney and Marco Rubio, Cass argues for a reborn conservative movement that emphasizes the importance of family, community, and, hold on to your seats, labor unions. And he believes that in the aftermath of Trump's exit from the White House, an opportunity has emerged for Republicans to seize on this new coalition of middle and working-class interests. Orrin Cass is the author of the much-talked-about book, the once and future worker, and a contributor to the New York Times, on whose pages he's argued that we spend too much money pushing everyone to go to college instead of ensuring opportunities for those who don't. I spoke to him this week over Skype. Here are excerpts from our conversation. I think there's a lot of conservatives out there who just see it as tautological that to be conservative means to be against unions. I don't think that's a particularly helpful attitude, but it's a common attitude. Have you heard from some of those people? Well, yes, (laughs) there are a lot of those folks. I think, though, increasingly over the last couple of years, people have at least come to realize that they can't rely on those tautologies, or I, I always call them dogmas as comfortably as they used to. So I think there's an enormous amount of disagreement, but people increasingly realize and accept that these things have to be hashed out rather than being shocked that someone would say such a thing. I'm not an American, but like everybody else, I'm marinated daily in political commentary about the United States. And I definitely got the sense that a lot of American conservatives were happy to claim the working class vote without claiming unions, sort of having one without the other. And I think to some extent, Trump did manage that. Was there a sort of implicit understanding among many establishment conservatives that through Trump, maybe we can get working people, blue collar working people without necessarily getting their union leaders? I think that's definitely the case. And the working class doesn't necessarily like unions either. I mean, I think one of the key dynamics that make this an area that's so ripe for reform is that it's not as if labor unions today are these robust defenders of workers and much loved for it. They certainly have their pockets of support. But large swaths of the working class are quite anti-union. And one thing you find if you talk to politicians, particularly on the right of center, who have many of those folks in their coalition, is one of their hesitations in starting to speak more positively about labor is specifically that it will alienate that part of their constituency. And so I think vital to making progress is to just emphasize over and over again that labor as a movement, as the concept of workers being able to organize and have collective representation and bargain, that's not synonymous with American unions. American unions are one not very good instance of that, that we need to move beyond in many respects. One of the concerns I have with any kind of political movement that's oriented around unions is that 
the union model, to some extent, presumes a kind of static technological situation. Unions were highly effective when there was a certain way of making steel or cutting lumber or offloading ships and harbors that persisted for years or decades or in some cases generations. And so unions could set rules for how many workers you would have and their conditions. In an age where technology has accelerated changes in the way we work, even putting aside politics, do unions still have a prominent role in helping to organize our economy? Well, again, I think we have to distinguish unions as they exist in America today from labor as it could exist and in fact does exist in many parts of the world. For Americans, we just take for granted Sally Field standing up on the table with her sign that says union in Norma Ray. That's that's what unionizing means. It means you have a fight in your workplace and a vote to get your workplace unionized. And then even after that happens, then the union is going to fight with the employer. And the employer, quite rightly, is pretty desperate not to concede to too much because its competitors probably aren't making those same concessions if they don't have a union. So that's this very, uh, what's called enterprise level, meaning you're organizing firm by firm, and therefore very adversarial system that then also generates these collective bargaining agreements that, as you said, start to specify exactly how many workers you have when and where and who can do what and the seniority protections and the work rules and so on and so forth. None of that is inherent to the idea of organized labor. And so just to give a contrasting view, if you look at what happens in Northern Europe in particular, labor is not a firm-by-firm activity. We think of right-to-work as kind of the union-busting tool in America in some cases. Europe is right-to-work. You don't have to join a union because your workplace is unionized. The way the system tends to work is that unions are institutions in civil society that you join because you want to, typically because they provide benefits to you. Sometimes they do training. They help with relocation. They, in some cases, provide social benefits like unemployment insurance or health insurance. And then the unions, in turn, are not bargaining with individual employers, but they are bargaining with industry groups. And they are setting terms and conditions of employment for the industry as a whole, which, among other things, that means you don't have to worry that if you're an employer and, and you have to deal with the union, you're at a disadvantage compared to some competitor. That system's not perfect either. We could have a long conversation about the drawbacks and the trade-offs. And certainly, I wouldn't say the U.S. should simply import this country's system or that country's system. But the point is the idea that workers should be able to organize collectively, that they should have institutions in society that represent their interests, both in politics and in the economy. Those, I think, are just good ideas. And by the way, I think they're fundamentally conservative ideas because the alternative to having that isn't having nothing. It's having the government do it. If we don't have labor with power in the labor market, we end up doing more redistribution after the fact, because we tend to have a lot more inequality. And so I think a lot on the right of center have imagined that there's this ideal world where employers just do whatever they want, which isn't an ideal world anyway. And starting with Adam Smith, there was a recognition that that's not a good idea. But that's not what we're going to end up with. We are either going to end up with a system where workers also have power and can engage with employers on equal footing, or we're going to have government playing that role. And I think for conservatives, labor being able to represent itself should be a lot more appealing. Are you describing what loosely might be termed a kind of corporatist approach that Japan has had at one point, and it sounds like Germany still has elements of that, where you have large institutional players in industry, including on the labor side, managing a lot of training, but also educational aspects. In Germany, you have vocational training. People get streamed into the trades, and unions and large companies play a role in that. Do you think United States could ever become that kind of society, which 
relies on a lot of trust between different players? We certainly would need more trust. And I think that goes to an important point, which is that these kinds of reforms that we're talking about here are not just a matter of there's some 2000 page bill in Congress and poof, we have a better system. They are just as much about building up practices and expertise and relationships and institutions that can facilitate these kinds of processes. But I certainly don't see any reason why we would say America can't have that kind of trust or America can't have institutions of labor that work with both government providers and with employers to do useful things. I think to the contrary, in a lot of the places where you look around and ask what's missing, that is what's missing. Yet another of the reasons why I think for conservatives, labor should be so interesting is conservatives rightly spend an enormous amount of time talking about civil society and the so-called mediating institutions that aren't the individuals and aren't the government and play such important roles. And yet from a policy perspective, it's admittedly difficult to know what you do. I mean, you can lament the decline of religiosity and the declining role of the church or the synagogue in the community, but I don't know what law you're going to pass to fix that. Unions are sort of the exception. I mean, unions are an incredibly important institution of civil society, particularly for workers and their families, and they are in many ways creatures of law. So that, if conservatives are serious about wanting to buttress civil society, again, I think is a reason to ask, well, how can we ensure we have a a system that creates good opportunities for workers to form these kinds of relationships? And now a message from Blinkist, the app that distills the essence from over 4,000 best-selling non-fiction books and brings them to you in 15-minute text and audio explainers. As part of my job at Quillette, I need to be conversant about what books my readers and listeners are talking about, in part because a lot of the authors of those books end up on this podcast. But life is busy. Blinkist lets me dive into a topic quickly and find out how to deploy my reading time best. Blinkist also has teamed up with popular podcast creators to blink those podcasts for you too. And yes, the company uses the word blink as a verb like that. It's a thing. By blinking a podcast using a feature called shortcasts, you can get to the heart of an episode quickly, complete with high quality audio. You can jump right in on the go during your commute, at the gym, around the house, or even download to listen offline. 15 million people are already using Blinkist to broaden their knowledge in 27 nonfiction categories, including self-improvement, personal growth, management, leadership, and mindfulness. And like I've told you before, the length of a typical Blinkist abridgment is just 15 minutes, about the length of time it takes me to walk my dog. Some of my recent favorites include The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator by Timothy C. Weingard, Becoming by Michelle Obama, and The AI Economy by Roger Boodle. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free 7-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to get 25% off and a 7-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. How much of the resistance that you're facing is based, to a certain extent, on sentimental romanticizing of conservative tradition in the United States? Because you make the argument that there's a sort of historical accident that happened, that conservatives rightly pushed back against 
communism in the 20th century because communism was a revolutionary movement. And going back to Edmund Burke, conservatism has always been an anti-revolutionary movement generally. But because of that, they ended up back-ending into a dogmatic defense of free trade and free markets almost to a religious extent. But capitalism itself, when taken to an excess, can become a sort of revolutionary force. Entire careers and families and communities get overturned and impoverished overnight. A lot of other people get rich and society as a whole becomes richer, but there are negative effects. And yet, if you look at some of the romantic narratives of American conservatism, people still tell the story of Ronald Reagan and the air traffic controllers. They talk about it as a heroic narrative. Do you still see people coming back at you with what are essentially those kind of, I don't want to call them sentimental arguments, but they're very much about heroes of the conservative movement and what they did and using them as a model for what we need to do? Well, Reagan famously was also quite favorably disposed to unions in various ways. And in fact, I believe was a union member at one point. So I think you're right that there's a lot of sentimentality and sort of misunderstanding of what a Reagan-like figure represented. I mean, among other things, Reagan's approach to Japan and trade issues there finds many echoes in Trump's approach to China. Reagan was an aggressive protectionist on some questions. And that's one of the key reasons we ended up with this incredibly strong and productive Japanese auto manufacturing industry based here in the American South. But I think there are sort of two streams there that you were describing that are both really important but have to be teased apart a little bit. One is this romantic narrative of markets and the idea that markets by themselves generate just these wonderful outcomes and that the rising tide lifts all ships and that that is the secret sauce of widespread middle-class prosperity. And to be clear, there's an element of truth to that. I think markets are necessary to that. And I think markets are exactly the right way we should be organizing our economy. I think one reason conservatives objected to communism was not just its revolutionary nature, but its fundamentally centralized, socially engineered nature, which runs against both conservative principles and priorities and also just conservative, hard-won common sense about what can and cannot work in a human society. So conservatives rightly and correctly are pro-market, but we began to take for granted, I think, that markets just automatically generate these great outcomes, that surely there must be something in the economics textbook that explains why firms pursuing profit create all these great effects for workers. And that's just not necessarily true. Under some conditions, it can be true. And I think it more so was true in, say, the 1960s, when a lot of these dogmas were kind of beginning to gain steam. But then I think we've also seen times when it's not true. And I think the current era is one of those. And so what's really important is for conservatives to recognize they built an alliance with libertarians, but libertarians were pro-market almost regardless of outcome. The market is the end unto itself. Whereas for conservatives, I think it's much more a view that the market is a wonderful mechanism, but we need to ask how it's working and the rules constraining it and the institutions operating within it are vital to its success and economic policy needs to follow that. So there's that stream of economic thought. And then there's also just the more conceptual stream of what is actually conservative. And to your point about the disruptiveness of capitalism, you know, creative destruction and disruption and so forth are important and can be positive forces. We don't want to shut those down, but there is a tension there. And the idea that the most free trade and the biggest tax cuts and the least regulation, that that's what conservatives are for, is nonsensical. <laughs> 
none of those things are inherently conservative. And so in conjunction with facing different outcomes in the market, I think conservatives have to go back to, well, what are the actual principles that animate us? And how do we apply those to solving the problems of today, rather than just continually flipping through the old playbook that we came up with 40 years ago? So there's a conservative writer who's still very active and prominent today. His name is Rod Dreher, who wrote a book, which I still remember, and I wrote about it positively at the time. This was 2006. It was called Crunchy Cons, How Birkenstock, Burkeans, Gun-Loving, Organic Gardeners, How Their Diverse Tribe of Countercultural Conservatives Can Save America, or at least the Republican Party. And the thesis was that if you go back to Edmund Burke, if you go back to the original ideas of what we now call conservatism in the 18th century, they're completely different from dogmatic free market capitalism. And I found his book persuasive. He was making the case not just for unions, but it was about how environmentalism and thinking about your community and thinking about nature and thinking about preserving things, including preserving jobs in traditional sectors and not tearing down houses every 20 years because you're building McMansions. He was talking about how all those can be considered conservative ideas. It was a very persuasive book, but it went nowhere because the whole ecosystem of free market think tanks and donors and lobby groups had no time for that. Do you worry that your book will suffer the same fate, that there's just this whole ecosystem of constituencies that are pushing the Republican Party in a particular direction and what you're proposing doesn't fit in with that? Well, I think it's a very different time than 15 or 20 years ago. And I think it's important to trace not just the political changes that we've seen happening. And Donald Trump was obviously a quite prominent phenomenon in that respect. But just on the ground, what has happened, particularly with the financial crisis and the Great Recession that followed, I think people have learned some lessons. I think it is obvious in the wreckage of the financial crisis how badly run amok supposedly greatest market institutions had become. In the incredibly slow recovery from it, it was clear that simply letting the market run was not automatically going to generate the outcomes that we wanted. Alongside that, the evidence finally became quite clear that free trade with China China was not this brilliant stroke of neoliberal policy execution, but instead had been incredibly damaging to wide swaths of the country and to the nation's economic strength and resilience. And then on top of that, you had the deaths of despair, which I think were a very important phenomenon and showed with very good epidemiological work that that the declining life expectancy, particularly for sort of middle-aged, less educated white Americans, was something pretty much unprecedented in our history. And that what was driving that was substance abuse, of course, the opioid epidemic, which was claiming tens of thousands of lives a year, really, depending on how you measure, exceeded the peak of the AIDS epidemic. Those things were all building in 2005, but I don't think people were attuned to them then, that there really is a problem here. And I think that combined with Donald Trump's political success has underscored that the dogmas that were taken for granted as, of course, the sort of winning formula and what the right of center voters in America wanted just wasn't true anymore, if it ever had been true. And so what you're seeing now, I think, is that there is traction that you wouldn't have seen in prior decades. And you see a cohort in the Senate, you see writers and researchers, you see institutions starting to build steam that really are pushing in this direction. And yes, is there a lot of inertia and people and money for the status quo? Of course, there always is. But when the arguments actually happen, I think our side is winning them. And when you look at where the most energy and promise is going forward, I think it's in a very promising direction. Before the election, 
newspapers like the New York Times, there was this article that they loved to run, and there was truth in it, basically showing how a lot of Trump's core constituencies supported him despite the fact that Trump's own policies often caused them economic hardship. And the idea being that a lot of voters perhaps especially that kind of voter, is really voting for a kind of cultural posture without maybe thinking as much as they should about their economic interests. Tell me a little bit about the complex interrelationship between the Trump phenomenon and the ideas you're describing, because Trump's relationship with unions was weird. It wasn't a traditionally conservative relationship. And at the same time, his relationship with traditional working class economic issues, he played to those in a kind of indirect way. Can you maybe describe for listeners how Trump figures into this argument you're making? The funny thing about Trump is that he is a person more so than an ideology. There isn't really a Trumpism that I think you can draw around him that you would say exists independent of him. And so what we think of as Trumpism really comes down to the style and points we remember him emphasizing on the campaign trail in 2016. Whereas among other things, in fact, that's not necessarily how he and his administration governed at all. The major legislative achievement was a large tax cut. Second legislative effort was the repeal of Obamacare. Then you even go agency by agency and look at the sort of regulatory things that were done. And it's frankly very hard to even find a pattern. Same if you look at the sorts of folks he appointed, who he had advising him on economic issues, And so I think the lesson to be learned from Trump is not, well, there you go. You see, that's what works. You need more Trump. It's that he, I think, very effectively highlighted problems that were going unaddressed and interests and concerns that had a constituency and that you could build a coalition around. And so the metaphor that I'm always fond of using is that he was in some respects like an earthquake. An earthquake just knocks things down. You don't ask, what did the earthquake build? Putting aside the extraordinary short-term damage, the earthquake also provides an opportunity for renewal. The earthquake knocks down the structurally weakest things. It can point to a lot of mistakes that you've made. And while some people will charge in and say, let's just quickly put back everything that got knocked over, it in fact is the opportunity to say, what can we learn from this? What can we do better? And how do we build something that's going to be more resilient and more what we need for the future? And so I think that work remains to be done. But I think the opportunity post-Trump exists in a way that it didn't pre-Trump. Earlier on in the conversation, you talked about how maybe it might be good to get past the idea of unions and their role being all about us versus them and labor versus management. That said, it's hard not to notice that corporations have largely become a force for liberalism in the United States, certainly culturally speaking, certainly Silicon Valley. You now have a very progressive culture there. As you say, a lot of very wealthy managerial types, they vote Democrat now, in part for cultural reasons. How much of this is kind of just flipping the valence, where since you have wealthy managers and corporate shareholders voting Democrat and having very progressive values, certainly compared to what corporate types held 30 or 40 years ago, maybe there's a switch in the polarity of socioeconomic politics. I think there will always be an inherent tension and adversarialism between labor and management, I I think the question is, where do you want to locate that? And if you can get that out of every workplace and up to, for instance, more the the industry's managers and labor negotiating, I I think you have a healthier system. But to your point about the the sort of reversal, I I think that's exactly right. And, And this is where the term realignment comes up frequently, that I think we are seeing a realignment in American politics. And that's just something that happens from time to time. I mean, political coalitions 
are built around sets of ideas that cohere logically and people with 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 interests that cohere logically and then the world changes and that's both in in the social and cultural realm and, and in the economic realm and w- what we're seeing simultaneously is a a democratic party that is frankly ab- abandoning a lot of working class interests and concerns in favor of this very sort of strange woke ideology and and then in economic terms with with this obsession with the college graduate and and you see this you know the the first big policy issue that pops up when when Joe Biden wins the election is oh Joe Biden should you know forgive as as much student loan debt as <laughs> as he can as quickly as possible it's just like i'm sorry when when did people with student loans become the the sort of prime in need constituency that the democratic party focuses on. I mean, if we're just like, why not car loans or, or mortgages? And so I think you're seeing that realignment happen. And and in some cases, it's a one party or the other sort of forsaking a group. And in, in others, it's it's the party particularly trying to attract a group. But I think you will increasingly see that that it is the, the right of center and, and conservative ideas generally that that are the ones that are speaking to the typical household with workers trying to support their families and make ends meet. One of the most important votes that took place in November, which got comparatively little coverage, was this referendum that took place in California over the question of extending certain kinds of worker protections to people who worked in the gig economy, such as with Uber and Lyft. And that motion or that referendum vote, that was defeated. And for me, it shows that the gig economy is a huge barrier to unionization because you've got a lot of these companies, Uber being one of them, that say, hey, look, these are independent contractors. There's no union because there's no workers. How much of that is a barrier to the sort of plan you're putting forward? Well, gig economy is almost the quintessential example of why a different model of labor would be better, particularly in a modern, more flexible labor market. Our model says you have to basically be a full-time employee who works in a particular building for a particular company so that you can all vote on whether you want the union. That obviously applies very poorly to gig workers. If instead you said, well, no, 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 unions are something that gig workers can just join. Folks who use a driving platform have essentially a driver's union, and that union bargains with the firms that provide gig platforms. And they are going to strike agreements that are going to govern how those platforms operate for the drivers. And it doesn't matter how much of your time you're working for which company or which platform. These are essentially industry-level agreements. That's a much better model. In fact, there are a lot of reasons why this makes sense as the place to start before seeing to what extent you might want to use something like that elsewhere in the economy. But I think the interesting thing about Prop 22, which was this referendum in California, also is that it illustrates the point I was describing earlier about the trade-off between strong labor movement and government regulation. What you had in California was the government saying, well, we have to protect these gig workers, so we're going to pass a law essentially defining all gig workers as full-time employees. That doesn't make sense for the employers. It doesn't make any sense for what a lot of those drivers want. But if you have government doing the regulation, you're going to get something like that. And the pushback from the gig platforms then was, this is terrible. Let's wipe it off the books and have nothing. And they happen to win that round. But that's not a stable equilibrium either. The way to get around that fight is to instead have a system where workers and employers or platforms actually have an infrastructure to reach agreements among themselves so you don't have to have the voters of California whipsawing things back and forth. 
And now a message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, the online counseling service that helps people everywhere become happier and more productive. At BetterHelp.com, you'll connect with your professional licensed therapist in a safe, private, online environment using secure video, phone, online chat, or text. Anything you share is, of course, strictly confidential. While BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, new clients can start communicating with their counselor in under 24 hours. When self-help methods aren't enough and you seek professional counseling, BetterHelp can connect you to a network of thousands of licensed therapists. And you can switch therapists to make sure you get the right fit. Licensed counselors include specialists in sleep, trauma, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. So many people are using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 U.S. states. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. There's no awkward waiting room, and you can message your BetterHelp counselor at any time. Financial aid is available in some cases. Join over 1 million others who are taking charge of their mental health by visiting BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, dot com. Quillette listeners get 10% off their first month service with the discount code Quillette. Just go to BetterHelp.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. How much of this rapprochement between Republicans and conservatives in the United States and unions has taken place from the other side? I know that in this recent election, you had some prominent unions declaring for Trump. Is that a new phenomenon or is that actually part of the pattern that we've seen in recent decades? It is a newer phenomenon, but also a very old phenomenon. The labor movement in America used to be much less partisan than it became, peaking in the 90s when labor started fighting very aggressively against even pro-labor Republicans because they wanted to ensure that, for instance, Democrats held the House, at which point pro-labor Republicans said, well... then what am I pro-labor for? And you got this hyper-polarization. It represents the pendulum swinging back to some extent to now see some unions standing up and saying they wanted to support Trump. Certainly, I think it would make a lot of sense to say his policies were likely to be better for the workers in a variety of unions. And then more broadly, I think what you see is an interest among labor leaders in these more dramatic types of reform. And I say labor leaders to distinguish from unions, because if you are a sort of union in the big labor mold, obviously saying, well, let's do a different model would be quite threatening. And and so you don't see a lot of folks currently in big labor who are going to support these kinds of reforms, but you see a lot of folks who used to be in big labor. (laughs) You see a lot of folks who have left those jobs and are still passionate advocates for workers who recognize that change needs to happen. And whether that's if you look at what they have that's called the Clean Slate Project at Harvard Law School, which is just that, saying we should be talking about labor law from a clean slate, not how do we tweak existing law to make existing unions stronger. To folks like Andy Stern, the longtime head of the SEIU, who has been a very constructive advocate for reform. Someone like David Rolfe, who was an SEIU organizer and wrote for some of the work we did at American Compass. Folks like that are saying, yes, we want to have these conversations too. Are there the standard interest groups who don't want to see change? Of course there are. But I think, again, the energy and the interesting developments are all on the side of this potentially being an area where we could make some progress. Oren Cass is executive director of American Compass. Their recently released publication is called A Seat at the Table, 
a conservative future for the American labor movement. It can be downloaded at americancompass.org. Thanks so much for being on the Quillette podcast. Thanks for having me. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.